And their birthdays. And their birthdays. Thank you. At least the people you believe to be your parents. Yeah, I don't know oh, gosh about that. Can <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I always thought you were just catching now. No. The whole world's adopted. Although, in Rambam, in the three chapters, we just finished covering the laws of what is considered valid standards of evidence for parental um, attribution. Yeah, nobody who was around when my mom had me was shown her shop by any stretch of the imagination. So, you don't even know if I exist with the real platform. Okay. So, I want to summarize what we learned in the past two days in a short sentence or two or three or four, but not more than that. No, I do not want to do that. Okay? The godly soul, the godly soul is to God as the child is to the brain of the father. What does that mean? Just as the brain is the place where the father's essence is housed, so too that essence is perpetuated in the child. God's essence is, quote, within God, and God's essence is perpetuated within the godly soul. However, there's a difference between the analogy and the godly soul, which is that there is some level of disconnect between the individual being of the father and his essence, which means that there's also some level of disconnect between the individual being of the child and his essence, which means there's some level of disconnect between the individual child and the individual father. In contrast, because there is no difference between God's essence and his individual being, therefore, that his essence being perpetuated into the godly soul means that his individual being is perpetuated into the godly soul. So the idea that the godly soul is literally a piece of God above is more true of the godly soul than it is of the human child to the father. That is a summary of the last two days. Okay. Now, in what way is God more one with his essence than a human being is with their essence that we elaborate at great length about the knowledge and how knowledge works and blah, blah, blah. If you got it, great. And if you didn't, we're moving on. Okay. Good? Okay. Today, we are going to be learning eight Hebrew words. Maybe nine if you want to count the word note. Um, and we're going to be learning 19 English words in the text. That's 19 English words. 20 if you count the word note. We're going to be learning the note. Not all the note, just a little bit of the note. Okay. Will we finish everything that we need to do in these eight words in today's class? I don't know. We'll see. But that's what we're doing. Okay. So the note. It's 19 words in English. Note. Um, so before we read the note, let's actually go look back at what the note is based on. Um, you're either on page six or page five, I think, yeah? Yeah? Okay. So, it's um, going back um, about four lines before the note starts. For he is wise, but not with the knowable wisdom, because he and his wisdom are one, as Limonides says. Right? So God, unlike us, is one with his wisdom slash knowledge slash mind slash brain, blah, blah, blah. And then the note continues, after the note continues, that he is the knower, the knowledge, and the knower, etc. Blah, blah, blah. So there's a note on, as Maimonides says. So but even before the Alter Rebbe and Tanya tells you what Maimonides says, he already has a note. What's the note? And the sages of the Kabbalah have agreed with him. Who's the him? 
Maimonides, as it is stated in Pardes of Rabbi Moshe Cordovero. Period. That's it. That's all we're going to study today. So the sages of the Kabbalah, they agreed with Maimonides. And where does it say that they agreed with him? In Pardes. In Pardes. Who wrote the Pardes? Rabbi Moshe Cordovero. Okay. Now, pop quiz. Rabbi Moshe Cordovero was Ashkenazi or Sephardi? Sephardi. Right. Why, well, why does it sound Sephardi? Because Cordova is a city in Spain. And he was called Rabbi Moshe Cordovero because his family came from Cordova, Spain. Okay, yeah, there you go. The only thing that could be more explicit that he was Sparty is if it had the word Sparty actually in his name, but okay. Fine. Okay. So, now, the first thing that we need to, the first thing I need to do is, I'm going to, is, is um, I need to teach you a word in Hebrew, because they translate here as agreed. Yeah, the sages of the Kabbalah have agreed with Maimonides, with the Rambam. But the word in Hebrew, um, if you look in the Hebrew, if anyone is interested in it, is v'haydu. Um, so, anyone here speak Hebrew? Yes. What? Okay. And what does v'haydu mean? Like to announce? No. It can mean to praise. It doesn't mean here that they praised. It has another meaning. To acknowledge? To acknowledge. Okay, so what's the To acknowledge, to concede, to accept... Agree is not really the best translation. Is praise also inaccurate here? It, praise is completely inaccurate here. Okay, but we do use it. We, we, in davening, we use it for, for double meaning. There's a, the, davening uses a double meaning. We, we acknowledge God and we praise God. It has both meanings. Okay, so let, let me talk just a little bit. What is it? Wh- if, two, if you go to see a doctor and the doctor tells you um, that you need a surgery... Does anyone know what the Rebbe says you should do? Go to a second doctor. Go to a second doctor. And then if the second doctor says that you need surgery, then what should you do? Go to a third doctor. No, then you should have surgery. But if the second doctor, if the second doctor says you shouldn't have the surgery, then what should you do? Go to a third doctor. Okay. So who does the surgery? And you do basically... That's a separate thing. It's just to decide if you should have surgery. And you see like what the majority say? Right. That's a very interesting question that's discussed in the laws of how to comprise a court. But if they ever said that both two doctors both say that you should have surgery, then that's good enough. Okay. It will be majority, either way. Now, what I want to point out in that is, if the first doctor says that you should have surgery, and then you go to the second doctor... And the second doctor says, well, you know, if the first doctor said that you should have surgery, taking that into account, I think that, yes, you should have surgery. Is that really fulfilling the instruction of the Rebbe? No. Why not? He's just, he doesn't have his own opinion based on He doesn't really have his own opinion, right? Right. He's more conceding to, acknowledging, accepting the opinion of the other doctor, right? You want two doctors that independently of their own mind come to their own decisions, and then they happen to agree with each other, right? That makes sense? Okay. So there is a concept, um, which I think is what we usually mean when we say that two people agree with each other, which is my mind working off of its methods on its premises, independent of your mind, and your mind 
working on your premises and your methods independent of my mind reach the same conclusion, then we can say we agree with each other. Right? But in a certain sense, you know, can you really agree with your teacher and on the topic being taught? That doesn't make a lot of sense. Why? Because, you know, what's really happening is the teacher's trying to explain something. So either you understood what the teacher has explained to you and you've accepted it, or you didn't understand what the teacher said and you accepted it, or you understood it and rejected it, but you're working off the influence of the teacher, right? You're not coming, okay? So we need to differentiate between people that are just in agreement with each other, whereas people that are acknowledging and validating the other's point of view. Do you hear the difference? And there are degrees of validating the other person's point of view. We can play semantic games, and it's fine that if we want to use the word agree to encompass all of that, which is why I'm not saying the translation is wrong. But it's very important to understand that here the Hebrew word is not implying two sages or two people who independently came to the same conclusion. It's implying you have one group of sages who in principle thinks one thing. The Rambam thinks something else. And then when they take into account the Rambam, what the Rambam says, they say, you know what, okay, we can accept what he's saying. Mm. Implying that they're not in 100% agreement with him. They're validating, they're acknowledging certain points that he has and incorporating it into their view. But they're not reaching the same conclusions and coming from the same place and saying the same thing. Now there's a concept, this concept shows up, this concept shows up a lot in, in discussion. We have rabbis disagreeing whether it comes to matters of Jewish law or matters of theology, right? Many times what's happening is that you actually have two different opinions, but one side is acknowledging the validity of the other and incorporating elements of the other view into their own because they see they do have some good points, right? Does that mean they're in total agreement with each other? Does it mean they're saying the same thing? No. Okay. And that's, what the, what, that's what's happening here. Is the sages of Kabbalah say one thing. The Rambam says something else. And then what ends up happening? The sages of Kabbalah hear what the Rambam says, hear what Maimonides says, and they say, we have some good points. I think we have to like, modify our view. It's not really modify our view. We have to incorporate that into what we're saying. But in the end of the day, we're not saying exactly the same thing you're saying. We are, we are acknowledging the validity of your position and trying to modify our own to incorporate that and take that into account. Yes. Um, isn't that the way like, Jewish thought works? Yes, in general. So why is it like... Why because what I want you to understand is that these, therefore, it's not just the Kabbalists and the Rambam all say the same thing. Because if you read that letter without me stopping and making a big deal about this, how would you read that? The Kabbalists, the Rambam, they all say the same thing. Move on. And then you miss that there's a lot of stuff. And there's actually not what's going on. There's a lot of tension between the two. And on, at least when it comes to certain issues, that tension is resolved that the, 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 the Kabbalists are willing to take into and incorporate the Rambam's position. Which is, by the way, not the reverse. There's nothing in the Rambam's writings that explicitly take into account the Kabbalists' position. Maybe. Maybe. But one of the important issues in studying Torah is that we ignore the, the historical time and place where a person is. Like one of the key differences between studying Torah as a devout Jew and studying Torah as an academic is the academic tries to use the historical and social context of the sage in order to contextualize what they said. Whereas the devout Jew says, regardless of the social or historical context, they're ultimately channeling God's wisdom and therefore the ideas have to stand in a timeless eternal state and you have to understand them that way. So who came first and who came second 
is not so material for the slave show. In fact, your average rabbi only has a vague sense of which sages came before. And they know these ones are all medieval, but then you start asking them, okay, who came first, the Rash brother, Ramban? They might not know, and frankly, when you study, it doesn't generally speaking matter. Um, especially since, you know, it's not like, especially since you always have, you always have these same issues being rehashed over again. So it's, even though, even though the, the Kabbalists might have historically written, published things later, you definitely had people counteracting them against the Rambam and trying to maintain the Rambam's original positions. But the real answer is because when we study Torah, we don't limit it to the historical time and place in which it came about. The Rambam? The Rambam lived in the 1100s. Ten, early, late 10, early 1100s. Because, but the Rambam can't have come to the seat into something that was it written down yet? Yeah, like, how would that work? Well, or, but, the, but, but, two things. One, even if that's the case, the fact that God chose to bring out that opinion that way itself means something. Two, it's not necessarily the case that just because it wasn't widely disseminated, the Rambam was not aware of it. There are, and I, and I was very clear when I said, expl- I was trying to be very clear when I said explicitly. There are a lot of things implicit in the Rambam's writing that he is, um, as, the, as the Talmudic expression goes, you reveal one measure and conceal two. That he's holding back a lot more than he's willing to say. Just one interesting thing is the Rambam wanted to write a book explaining all the weird stories of the sages and what they really mean, and they decided not to do it. Wait, like explaining the weird stories? Yes. So now we just don't know. And not only that, there's actually a book of really weird stories, like really, really weird stories of the sages. Not in Talmud. It's called Pirkei Hechales. It's really weird. Um, What's the story? But we don't know that? No, we know. It's published. But it's got stuff like Rabbi Akiva went up to heaven and saw how tall God was and stuff like that. Yes, it asked how tall God was. No, no. Um, and so he, so he, Rambam writes in a letter that he wants to write a commentary on this explaining what these things truly mean. And then he decides not to. And then later in life he says, no, no, those books are actually forgeries, they're heretical. So, so it becomes, and there you get this sense when you read the Rambam's writings that like he wants to reveal stuff, but then he starts to realize like maybe there's a reason why the sages didn't reveal stuff. And that information can be used. Oh, it's, it's considered a basic text in Kabbalah. What's it called? Pirkei? Pirkei HaKhalis. And in Kabbalah, it does explain what it means that God has a height, but we're not going to talk about that today. Anyway, so what I'm saying is that if you, if, you, if, you, if you come from the perspective that every sage is really channeling an aspect of God's wisdom, ultimately, then it really doesn't... Historically, how it played out wouldn't really matter, and ultimately, God works the no, providence. You're saying, you're saying like someone is acceding to something. Like, that has to... That's right, but since God runs, runs the world, God reveals him. And God could have revealed that before and made the Rambam have to contend with it. And he didn't do that, right? Which means he wants the Rambam's position to stand as an independent position. He wants the Kabbalah to then contend with the Rambam. Right? God, could have, God could have revealed his wisdom in a different order. Right? And so if when you're studying it that way, it doesn't really matter. You say, this is one position, this is another position. And leave it at that. Okay. So what else have a question? Yes. Yeah. Um, why are you saying they disagreed but they accepted his view? Is it possible they, they had no independent no, thoughts yet? No, because we, we always use this term or maida, when there is a fundamental principle disagreement, but there is an acceptance on some specific issue. What do you mean by always? Like when we say moda'ani, we're not disagreeing. Well, actually, actually in, in, in Kabbalah, we do, say, we do explain it that way. 
Fundamentally, you think that your existence is an absolute. That's the starting, your mind works off your existence being an absolute, and then God's existence is an open question, right? And God has a slightly different view on the matter, right? That his existence is absolute, and your existence is an open question, right? And by saying Modani, what are you acknowledging? That even though my psychology bends towards a different view than yours, I can acknowledge that ultimately you are right, and I am wrong. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. So now we need to know what Kabbalah says. So we're going to do a little introduction to Kabbalah. Yay. Okay. Oh, what? Nothing. We'll see. Okay. <laughs> I'm scared. Okay. So, has anyone heard the term Ein Sof? Yeah. Yes. Okay. First, let's start with translating the, the, word ein, the words Ein Sof. Ein Sof, does anyone want to translate that? No. No, Ein Sof does not. Okay. No. Infinite is fine as long as you can then turn infinite into, into two English words. No end. No end. Okay, good. Why do I insist on you saying no end as opposed to infinite? Because by saying infinite, you're limiting. We don't understand what infinite means. No, the opposite is no. The opposite is true. People have all sorts of presuppositions of what they mean when they say infinite. That's what I meant. And like if you speak, able to calculate with infinities? <laughs> right, like if you studied math, then infinity has a very specific meaning, right? Some people, right? In, infinity has become a word in our speech, depending on which particular fields you've studied or how you, where we use the, I'll give you an example, right? If someone, if, 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 if Americans say a million, a million has two meanings. What are the two meanings of the word a million? An actual It million. is a thousand thousands. It is also... A lot. So much that you can't even like get. Okay. So the problem is if I say a million, I want to be very clear which million I mean, right? Okay. Millions of Jews left Egypt. Not no. Which million? No, it is. It is because if there were 600,000 men between the ages of 20 and 60 and you didn't figure out how many women there would have to be and how many children there would have to be and how many old men there would have to be, you run between two to three million people. I thought we don't like extrapolation. That's true. <laughs> we don't like extrapolation. Right? Just because we don't like something doesn't mean it has no validity to it. <laughs> we have to have... Right? Wait, I need to write that down. <laughs> yeah, me too. Right. Yeah. That means that means you have to counterbalance it against other things. If I have other reasons to doubt the extrapolation, that's fine, right? The extrapolation is nothing more than extrapolation, right? But so if someone says the millions of Jews left Egypt, you know, that, that doesn't mean a whole lot of Jews. It actually probably it could very realistically mean two to three million Jews. By the way, in the Talmud, the number 300 is like the English a million, just so you know. Wait, what do you mean? Whenever the Talmud uses the number 300, it just means a lot. Yeah. Oh, it just so it says that it says it says it says, it says it says that a certain sage had three hundred wives. <laughs> and he didn't. What is it? What does it mean? He, he had a lot of wives. It doesn't Who necessarily. Did it say that about Rabbi Tarfel? There's backstory. It's less disturbing than it sounds. <laughs> How can it be less disturbing? <laughs> I'll tell you if you want. It will tell you if you if you really want to know. Yeah. Okay. A Kohen is allowed to eat something called truma. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The Kohen receives truma basically based on his popularity. The more popular you are, the more people give, give you their truma. Because there's no requirement to give it to a specific Kohen. So who do you give your truma to? Your favorite, your favorite Kohen. So if you're a really popular Kohen, what do you get? 
And if you are not a popular coin, you should be better. Okay, so now Rebbe Tarifun was a coin and he was very popular, so he had a lot of truma. There were also a lot of people who were poor, and a non Kohen cannot eat truma. And there was a famine, and there was very little food. And he had a surplus of food, a tremendous amount of surplus of food, but he was a Kohen. You know who can, who's not a Kohen, who can eat truma? A Kohen's wife. A Kohen's wife. <laughs> and so there are all these people. What about her family, like extended family? No, like, just her, just her. Like her parents. No, just her and the children she has from him. There's lots of rules about this. And so he married, all, he actually did it all in one day. He married all these women in one day. Is that it didn't, it's not implied from the where they actually lived together. So, so they were all legally his wife and then he could do what? But part of the marriage. Right. Yeah. See, it's more of you have a ball or bad. There's a lot of backstory. But it's the point weird. is, the Gemara use it is weird, but it's not like I said. It's different than what you think it is. But the point is, the Gemara describes it as him marrying 300 women. Does it mean there was exactly 300, not 298? No, it means a lot. So we have to be clear when we use words. It's not enough to know a translation. You have to know what you what the word is actually being used to convey. So going back to the word infinite, I studied math. Infinite in math means something very precise. Yeah? Infinite in continental philosophy means something very precise. That's not the same thing as what a mathematician means. Right? So the question is, when the, they use the Hebrew words, ain't so, no end, and you then translate it as infinite, you run the risk of putting what into that term? All, all, all the limits, all the things that you think is being conveyed by that based on your use of the word infinite. So let's talk about just what is, there's something, so the word actually means no end. I mean, finite is just Latin for end, so fine, something with an end. So then the question is, what do we mean in this context by an end? Right? If ain't so means no end, then what, is some, what does it mean that something has an end? It doesn't right? exist beyond that. So fortunately for us, the Kabbalists tell us. Does anyone know what the oldest work of Kabbalah is, written work of Kabbalah? No. The Zohar is the Zohar is of the of the of the ancient works of Kabbalah, but by far the most, the longest and the richest, which is why it gets quoted a lot. But it's not the most ancient. The most ancient is the Sefer Yetzirah, the Book of Formation. The Book of Formation was originally compri- um, compiled by who? Anyone know? Avraham. This predates. It was it was compiled by Avraham. That means it predates the Zohar by thousands of years. Yeah. Okay, now. Um, Sefer Yitzir, the Book of Formation. Isn't Bracious? Wait, what did you say, Sefer? Sefer Yitzir, which literally means the Book of Formation. Okay? It's very cryptic, by the way. Maybe sometime I'll get like a copy of it and start reading it to you, but nobody really understands it. Anyway, so the Sefer Yitzir was then later redacted and edited by Rabbi Akiva. Okay, so the version we have has the influences of Rabbi Akiva on it. Yeah. Okay, so the Sefer Yitzir tells us something very nice about the Ein Sof, um, which is that Ein Sof. There's a synonym for Ein Sof. Ein Sof means no end, and the synonym is Bli. Bli means without. Ma. What does the word Ma mean? Now, now we have a test to see if everyone remembers our philosophy that we learned earlier. What does the word What does the word ma mean in Hebrew? What the what of something is it? Essence. So bli ma without what? Essence. Without essence, and that's a synonym for ain sof. So what is a essence? An end. An end. 
Something that has an essence has an end. So does God have no essence then? That's exactly what we would be saying by saying Ein Sof. Now we need some explanation, yes? <laughs> so, yeah. Just say historically, when we were talking about um, one of the rabbis who was a disciple of the Arizal at the time, Bissal, yeah. we said that like, the Arizal became a great Kabbalistic master by studying the Zohar. Yes. Why did he study the Zohar if the sacred Yitzhira is the first foundational book of Kabbalah? Because the Zohar is the richest book. So does the Zohar have the idea of the sacred Yitzhira in it? Yes. Okay. It's like, it's like, it's like, why, it's like, it's like, um, why, like, why, why most people don't just study the Tanakh on its own, if you have the entire oral Torah. The, the, the Sefer Yitzir is very short and cryptic, and the Zohar is very, for, for a work of that era, is very rich and detailed. But we would assume that, like, the Arizal, Rabbi Chaim Bital also studied Sefer Yitzir. No, they for sure did. Okay. Right. Okay. okay. So... Okay, so again like this. So ain means not, bli means without. So bli ma without ma without what? Without a wetness, without an essence. And if that's a synonym for ain sof, then the idea of a sof, an end, goes along with an essence. Meaning that which has an essence has an end, and that which has no essence has no end. Okay? Now, why would that be? Why does having an essence imply an end? Because that's all it is. That's it. Very simple. If this is what it is, then it's only what. Then it's only this one thing. It's this, and therefore it's not something. That's right. No, because everything your mind can think about is going to be something. If your mind is thinking of something, it is. It has an essence. It has an essence. What is this? Okay, and whatever makes it a cup, so we'll call it its cupness. The cupness of the cup makes it a cup, right? It has the essence of being, whatever that is. But where does it end? One second. Is it a dog? Is the very same thing that makes it a cup also mean that it's not a dog? So it's like confinement. It's confined, it's limited, it's bounded to its own. You are, right? Which is the most like banal statement in the world. You are whatever you are. <laughs> yeah, duh. You're this. Whatever, whatever, whatever you are, that's what you are, right? So what is the thing that limits everything? Itself. Itself. Whatever it is, it's limited to that. And if you, if, what happens if you try to, to force something to be something that's not itself, that's truly incompatible with its essence? You one of two things. Either you're stronger than it and you destroy it, or it's stronger than you and you fail. Like what happens if you were to what happens if you were to take a person and really try to make that person live as an animal? So one of two things would happen. Either you're stronger than that person and you would destroy the person. Right? Psychologically, maybe ultimately physically. Or they're stronger than you and you would eventually give up. But in as much as they're a person, they're not an animal. So you, they can't be an animal. They can pretend, but it only gets you so far. Yeah. We're okay with God not being able to be all sorts of things, though. We say, like, God is not finite. God is not 
that's right. Who? That's right. So, so this is this is the Kabbalists. They don't. They, the Kabbalists. They go around saying that God is Ain Sof. What does that mean? He has no essence. He has no essence. And what do what do what do the what do the theologians, the philosophers, like the Rambam, first and foremost? What do they say? Does God have an essence? Sure, he has an essence. His, and his essence, as someone put it, uh, was it yesterday or two days ago, his essence is basically the underlying commonality of all things virtuous. Yeah, everything that is inherently a virtue, if you reduce it to its core, the essence of all virtue, that is the essence of God. And the come along the cow say, no, no, God has no essence. It's like, if, if, if we start debating what color something is. That's a, like a legitimate debate. I mean, is it blue? Is it green? Like, I don't know if we've seen it. Have we not seen it, right? Even if you have seen it, right, the way you experience color depends on the lighting and the other things behind it, right? Okay. So, so debating color is like, in theory, a legitimate debate to have, right? Both because you might not have seen it, and if you have seen it, color can be perceived in different ways. If we start debating whether something is, has a color or is transparent, is that a legitimate debate? Sure it is. For two reasons. Number one, who says you saw it, right? Maybe we haven't seen it, so we could debate. Number two, even if you have seen it, right? Again, even transparency is not an absolute thing, right? Is air transparent? In certain, In certain cases, under certain conditions, right? I mean, there is a reason why there is a reason why if you have large amounts of air, the light starts bouncing off and the sky looks blue and the sunset, it looks red, right? If there was a just pure vacuum, the sky wouldn't look blue. So, so is air transparent? Is the water transparent? This looks transparent, right? But if I, feel, if I feel a lake with this, now you can see straight through the lake? No. So it's a little more complicated, right? Right. Okay. If we start debating whether something has the property of color, like say, I say freedom has no color, and you say no, freedom is red, white, and blue, <laughs> and you don't mean it as some sort of like metaphor for American ideology, you mean like literally it is, the color is red, white, and blue. That's not a legitimate debate. We are clearly speaking past each other, right? You see what I'm saying? Like, like if I'm saying this is not the kind of thing that has colors to it, and you're saying, yes, it is, then we're using the same word to mean two entirely different entities. Yeah? Okay. So get a bunch of theologians coming around. They're discussing, what is the essence of God? What makes God, God? And they debate and they discuss. And they say, well, you know, certain things can be true about God, certain things can't be true about God, and certain things have to be true about God, blah, 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 blah. And they come around saying, God is like, he's the essence of all vir of virtuous beings. So he's like the knower, the knowledge, and the known. He is, he's... He's, he's, he knows without, without having a defined quality of knowledge. He wills without being described as willing. He exists, but not with the trait we know as existence. Blah, 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 blah. And then the Kabbalist is sitting around and saying, like, what are you talking about? God isn't a thing that has an essence to begin with. Like, the whole conversation is pointless. The Kabbalist hears the philosopher talking about what the essence of God is. He's saying, do you also want to, like, talk about how tall he is and what his favorite ice cream is and what color eyes is? He doesn't have a size, he doesn't have a shape, he doesn't have a shoe size, he doesn't have a color eyes, his hair is neither wavy nor straight, nor does he have a defined essence. God is not, like, just like physical properties are not ascribed, you can't ascribe to God physical properties, or are you philosophers, you wouldn't ascribe to God deficiencies like cruelty and poverty. You can't ascribe any essence to God at all. God 
transcends this notion of, of being anything. He's not of anything. He isn't anything at all. So just shut up. And we have a verse to prove it to you. King David says in Psalms, Vidum Yasil, you want to praise God? Shut your mouth. Don't say anything. And what does the Zohar say? Lays no thought can think of him. And even if you're thinking about how his essence transcends, no, just, just stop thinking about him. Dumya Sahila. Silence is praise. God doesn't have an essence any more than he has a shoe size. It's just... An essence means you fit into a category. God doesn't fit in a category. Yeah. Um, are these not the same catalysts that have... Like, where does the whole concept that we're not real and we're based on like we're a reflection of what Hashem is and like our human body and like it's all a metaphor I'm not going to explain that to you right now I'm going to go in order of the ideas as I want to present them because if I do that then I have to like pretend that we already covered stuff we haven't covered okay in other words the Rambam and everyone else like the Rambam, they're working off of the premise that obviously every, everything is, is something, right? Everything has, it's mahus, it's what it is. God also has what he is. The difference between God and us is that what he is is unique. What he is, there's nothing else like him. What he is, we can only infer, we can't really grasp. But he still, there is something that makes God what he is. Being something specific is just as true of God as it is of anything else. And the Kabbalist says, no, being something is not true. God is not something. There is not what he is. We know what he does. But we're going to get to that. Yeah. Would Kabbalists say like, it's heretical to say that God has mahus? Or so, so, so the answer is yes. But, but they're acknowledging Rambam and saying... Well, that's, that's why we have the acknowledging Rambam. So much so, so much so that um, some Kabbalists go so far to say is that saying that God has a mahus is like saying God is, 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 is physical. Now, if someone goes around worshiping a physical entity as God, what do we call that? So therefore, what do those Kabbalists view of worshiping a transcendent essence of knowledge? Idolatry? Yeah, there was a famous Kabbalist named the Maral of Prague. You ever heard of the Maral of Prague? Okay, the Maral has very nasty words for the Rambam school of thought. And he says, there, it's not for naught our sages called him the Holy One, blessed be he, and not the wisdom, blessed be he. What does holy mean? Separate. Separate, beyond, yeah? So what's the ultimate holiness? Something that has no defined essence. Because if something is defined in some way, in some sense, it can be contextualized. In some ways, it can be categorized. In some way, you can deal with it. Why don't our sages call God the wisdom, the knowledge, blessed be he? Because he's not knowledge. He's not, he's, not an, he's not a rock. He's not a tree. He's not the sun. He's not the moon. He's also not knowledge. He's also not kindness. He's not compassion. So what is he? And the answer to that question is not, is that your question is working off a false premise. When you ask what something is, what are you assuming? It is something specific. It has a defined essence. God, that's, that is just as untrue of God as saying that he has a color or a size or a collection of lollipops in his closet. Yeah. Oh, just like with that though, why do we feel so comfortable like assigning a gender to him and using him and he? Because I feel like our human minds use that quickly to associate 
Okay, so I'm going to ask you a question. Are you asking because you would prefer there to be no gender, or are you asking why we use the male gender over the female gender? I would prefer there to be no gender. Okay, so the Hebrew language doesn't have no gender. By the way, moreover, no language has, has a genderless pronoun that implies a, a, a free agent. In other words, in English, we have a genderless pronoun. What's the genderless pronoun? It. It, right? What? French Has a pronoun that's, per, that's, that what? Yeah, yeah. Oh. It's genderless or works for both genders? It's genderless. It's one. Yeah, but it, but it, but it, but it, but okay, it, that, see, that, that's what I want to get at. That's what I want to get at. There's, in other words, like this. you could have a word that's what I want, I want to get at. You can have, you can have languages, you can have, you, you, you can have words that can work for both genders, but I, I, this is going to sound like nitpicking, but I, I, I actually feel quite strong. I would say that they're actually bi-gender. And what they mean is that in any specific instance, they are taking into account the gender. So you can do the same word for this gender or for that, and it works for both genders. And the reason for that is all human beings are either males or females. And when we personify things and we ascribe agency to them and subjectivity to them, we conceive of them as human, and all human beings have gender, so we conceive of human beings with gender. Now, we can then acknowledge that the gender is irrelevant to this particular purpose, so it could take either gender. And there's actually some words in Hebrew that are like that. That, that work grammatically as both genders. Some languages, like English, have a word that implies something that which is truly genderless, but in making it genderless, you also take away any sense of subjectivity and agency from it. That's why I mean, you just objectify it. That's what the word it does. So this creates a problem, is that we know of things that are like, basically, I'm gonna make this simply using analogies. We know there's, there's basically two kinds of things in reality, as far as we know, people and rocks. People are he's or, or she's, and rocks are it's. And now we have a problem. God is not a rock, and God is not a he, and God is not a she. So what word should we use? And the answer is? Just God. We don't, we, we, grammatically, like, gender-wise. So, so, so one answer to simply say is that we just ignore the concept of gender altogether, and in Hebrew this, because the whole language is gendered, it doesn't mean anything. Yeah, that's the cheap answer. The real answer is there is a reason why we pick the male gender over the female gender. Okay. And the real reason for that is we actually want to use gender because gender implies that God is not like a rock. Okay. Moreover, moreover, depending on the role in which we are speaking about God, in reality, we will pick the appropriate gender based on Judaism's notions of gender roles. Right. So, we've already spoken before about the difference between gender roles like in terms of essence and existence. Okay. Let's do one other thing about gender roles. Okay. Is there any direct, necess necessary direct contact between a child and their father? No. No. Is there any necessary direct contact between a child and their mother? Yeah. So when we speak about God as a being such that there is necessary direct contact with God, we refer to God as a he or a she. she. As a she. When we refer to God as a being which no direct contact is necessary, then we refer to God as a he. In other words, when we speak of God as transcendent, God takes the masculine gender. When we speak of God as imminent, we take God takes, generally, the feminine gender. And we actually have terms for this. This is why we, our sages refer to God as sometimes HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Holy and Blessed Be He, versus Shechina, which is a feminine word. 
Now, in most religious contexts, the issue is God's imminence or transcendence. God as we already encounter him or God as we're struggling to relate to. Like think about prayer, for instance. In prayer, what do you, are you praying to God that you... The God as already is part of your life is not what prayer is. Prayer is about God who's beyond your life. Okay, so therefore when you're addressing God in prayer is generally what gender would be appropriate. Masculine. Although when you speak about prayer, what you're saying is you're trying to unite the feminine and the masculine. The God as you already experience in your life and are comfortable with, with what's transcendent and beyond. So, so the, real, the real answer is that it's not that we pick gender because of, grammatic, of grammatical reasons. The real reason is that the gender um, it lines up with the specific theological point being made at that specific prayer and text. Okay. But which therefore means, if we, but that's all relationship, which means then if you're talking about God outside of any relationship with God whatsoever in any way, shape, or form, God would be genderless. But then you wouldn't be talking about him, so you don't have a problem anyway. Because the mere fact of talking about him is already some way of relating to him. So if you're speaking about God as a transcendent being, you use masculine. If you're speaking about God as present in the world, God is considered to be feminine. And if you're speaking about God in neither of those contexts, then you're not speaking about God at all. And that would be the, the true answer. Right. It, there are exceptions to this rule. Like there is one point in the middle of the Shemona Esther where we refer to God in this as the feminine. I'll give you it for homework to find. You'll need to know Hebrew because it's a pronoun. So there's no... Yeah. Why do you say that we want to give God gender because it makes, it implies that he's not a rock when, like in Hebrew and many other languages, gender extends to plenty of inanimate objects? Because, because the, so the Kabbalistic answer to that is that um, a rock is not just a rock. In other words, the, 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 what the, the Arizal would say is that really everything has a life source and therefore everything is gendered. In other words, that Kabbalah would take a step further. Not only is it not okay to call a person an it, on some level it's even inappropriate to refer to a rock as an it because it has a kind of a life to it and, and any time life engages reality, gen, gender is an aspect of that. So in languages where things are gendered, differently than they are in Hebrew? Then Judaism would say the classic answer with anything that's different than Judaism is a corruption of the truth and move on. Right, so they, they just call it wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A language that calls a table a she is misgendering yeah. the table. Because w- the Hebrew. life force of what it is to be a table, right. And then it gets really weird because like in Hebrew, for instance, even though some body parts take words or words that you would think are masculine, they're all grammatically feminine. feminine. Like, a naim sounds masculine, but in a sentence, I don't know, I don't you, you, you have to treat you the visit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You don't say a naim yafim. No, that's because all body parts are grammatically female, regardless of how, what they look like, what they sound like. But I thought that only if there are two, except there's like some exceptions. Maybe. I don't know. So, it, 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 I, I, I don't know enough grammar to argue with you, but, the, but there is a whole section in, 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 in not a whole section, there's a whole area of Kabbalah which gets into why things are called the way they are in Hebrew and why they have, why the rules of grammar are broken and how that touches on the spirituality and life force within things. Right, because and, it's like, it's so, it's so limited to speak about something so... Yeah. 
Right. So this is what. I, so if you want to get to which then gets another aspect, which is really should be the premise of the discussion, which is what is gender. Um, what is language? Oh, God. Language, language, lang, language is language is the interface between the mind and reality. The ultimate interface between <coughs> mind and reality, and gender is um, how does basically like this. If you really want to oversimplify it tremendously, I mean, you oversimplify it, you lose a lot. But if you oversimplify it tremendously, gender, the binary of gender reflects the fact that there's two things that are both bound with each other and in tension with each other, which is being present, something, or more actually, someone is present in reality, has that fact that there's someone in reality actually has two things that are there's bound up, which is them and reality are somehow connected, right? On the other hand, the fact that there's someone, in some sense, disconnected from reality, they're alone, they're not really part of reality. And that back and forth between two of those ideas um, are what Kabbalah would see as the ideas of masculine and feminine. They play out in a bunch of different areas, and that is ultimately embodied in everything from gender roles to the grammar of the holy language, etc., etc., etc. And so if you speak about God... And there's no reality. I mean, you wouldn't be speaking about God in that sense, but then gender wouldn't be applicable. The minute you speak about God vis-a-vis reality, gender is like built into that. And then which way you're looking at that would then determine what is the appropriate way of thinking about God gender-wise. Yeah. yeah. If in our unsuccessful pursuit to understand God... Who says it's unsuccessful? Because we can never understand God. Why? We yes. can't fully understand him. We can, but okay. Okay. In our unsuccessful pursuit to know God's face. Maybe. We're okay. actually, and people often ask, what is God? And we know that that's wrong. Is it better to then ask, what isn't God? Or is that, oh, that would work. That would work. If you were not, if you were not the Kabbalist, if you're the Rambam. Because if something has a defined essence, even if I can't tell you what that essence is, I can still tell what that essence not. is not. We're going to play a little game to illustrate that. That's right. So we're going to play a game. We're going to play a game called 20 questions, but 20 questions is too long. I'm not giving you 20 questions. I'm giving you fewer questions. So to make it fair, I will write down what I'm thinking about so you know I'm not changing in the middle. I have a little piece of paper. And you... I love games. Okay. Are going to ask some, some questions. Okay. Okay. Well... As as we need. Is it any? Is it a thing, or is it just? An, could it be a concept? You have to ask yes or no questions, and you <laughs> no, get and. You are required to say this person is a thing. I we're not. But we are not. We are. Cha- it's it's like twenty course. questions. It's not actually twenty questions. <laughs> so so like, you. No, you have to. <laughs> so you have to ask yes or no questions. And I'm not telling you how many questions you have. I feel like one of them should I be like, like is it a lie? Is it a loving? No. Is it something? Wait, what's the yes. thing? What? Is that something? Is that something? Yes. It has an essence. Everything has no. an essence. So it's not God. Okay, we know it's not God. <laughs> wait, we have to. Come on. Okay, we don't have many questions. We can, look, we're brainstorming. <laughs> so, as of right now, you know it is not a living thing, but it is a thing that has an essence. Yeah. And it's not a rock. Yeah. And it's not a rock. Okay. Is it inanimate? Yes. It is inanimate. Is it physical? No. It is Please. physical. It's physical. That helps us. Okay. Okay. What context is it? What are we trying to win? You just want to be Okay, I'm sorry. It's inanimate and physical. Okay, is it a table? I feel like it can be inside. 
It is not a book, but you're running out of questions. Oh. Should we say, like, is it small? Is, no, is no, it, no, is no. it, is it, is it, what's small? Is it small? I'm not gonna. I'm, I'm not gonna answer that because we're playing in English. Right, in some spiritual sense, but we're not gonna work on it. We're gonna work on like your normal use of. Like the easiest thing ever. We're all like completely over. Can we ask this question in the door? Go ask. Is it mentioned in the Torah? Directly mentioned. Why? Oh, so now can I ask you verbal? So yes. Yes, it is. Is it cupcake? No. Oh. <laughs> you have two more questions. Water. Is it something edible? No. Is it water? Yeah. Edible yeah. or potable? It's <laughs> no, it's edible. Edible yes. or what? Is it edible? Potable. 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 It's 100% a word. Is potable a word? Sorry. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> potable? Potable? No. It means that you can drink it. It's like the water that you flush down the toilet is not potable water. It goes to the shoe and then you smell water. Is it vegan? It is not vegan. Is it water? No, it's vegan. Last question. You know, it's now you know it's an edible thing that isn't that isn't vegan. Oh, it's meat. No, that's no, that's that's no, no. You guys, anything. Anything that we eat comes from something that once was alive. But that's a vegetarian. But you're not eating. It's an inanimate object. So I feel like it's like greenery. Eggs. Technically, greenery is living because it. Yeah. No, but it's not vegan. No, but it's an inanimate object. So soybean. Soybean. Okay. Last question. It's a rock. No. Enjoy your rock meal, okay, vegan. So yeah. Soybean. I'm calling it. No, it's soybean. No. It is not a soybean. No, that was not a soybean. I didn't ask you a question before. I just said Tofu. Tofu is soybean. Okay, I'll give you one more, one more question because soybeans are vegan. Dairy. Okay, not vegan. Dairy, meat, fish, eggs. Okay, we're going to stop now. You lost your question. Okay. Okay. The reason, remember, the purpose of this is not okay, actually to play the game. Okay. Would you like to know what it is? Yes. Chicken soup. Oh. Uh, that's potable. That's what? It's what? Potable. Potable is a word that only is applied to water. Oh, water. 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 Okay. Now. It's tennis paper soup. Okay. Now, what I want to point out is, do you notice how that if you ask the right kinds of questions, you can narrow it down? That's not vegan. Right, so, for instance, <laughs> is it edible? Then leads to the question, is it vegan? And the answer is it's not vegan. Now, you say, okay, so it's got to contain eggs or meat or dairy, right? Yes. Okay. So do you see by how knowing what something is not is equally as informative about knowing what it is in general? A general statement of this is true about it is, out, is as informative as saying this is not true about it. You get, yes, in the sense that they get you closer. I don't think if you know exactly what it is. And that's actually, by the way, how you play the game 20 questions. The way you would play the game 20 questions, you have to figure out what things divide all of reality into basically roughly half. 
or some nice easy groups and start there. And then you can narrow it. So it doesn't really matter which, if it was a yes or a no, you just know that, so is it edible? Okay, well, if it's not edible, that puts me in one half of metaphysical, like all the categories, and the other, if it is edible, puts me in the other half, right? And then so you narrow it down, so then you can start, and then usually after about like 15, 16 questions, you've narrowed it down to such a small, narrow space that you can start guessing specifics. That way you can, you can make it easy algorithms that can do this with computers play defending questions very easily because it's such a simple thing. Because the answer it's not is, out, is basically as informative the answer it is. Okay, so now, and that means even if you can't know what God is, if you can say what he's not and understand why he's not that, enough nots gets you in some sort of weird way closer to what he is. Which is what the Rambam actually says. How do we say that Moshe knew God more than we do if God is not really something you can know? Anymore, That's right. In other, words, in other words, like this. If you, if you go to a child and say, you know, this was a really funny once. One time I, I saw one of my kids thinking very deeply. They were like three or four. Three, I think. Mm-hmm. Three or four. And they were thinking very deeply as we were walking home. And something was bothering them. I said, what's bothering you? And he said, look, when is Mashiach coming? I said, okay. Okay. <laughs> Like, okay, but what's, what's, and see, like, it wasn't, it's like something was really bothering, like, why are you asking, like, well, because when Mashiach comes, Hashem is going to come live with us, but Babi and Zaydi are coming to visit for Pesach, and there's not enough room if Babi and Zaydi are going to be here, and for Hashem, because we only have so many beds in the house. Oh, my God. It's very adorable, right? (laughs) This is literally the cutest thing ever. (laughs) Okay, but... <laughs> but now here's the thing. Here's the thing. As as cute as that is, what does that show a complete lack of knowledge of? God. What Hashem is, right? Would you ever ask that question? Now you wouldn't ask that question for two reasons. One, the reality of Mashiach may not be as apparent to you because we've all become cynical. But the other is we actually know more about God. We know God is not the kind of thing that competes for bed space with grandparents. <laughs> So in some sense, you know more about God than the child does, right? Does that make sense? Okay. Raise your hand if you have questions about how free will works with divine knowledge. Okay. Do you know who didn't have that question? Moshe. Is that because Moshe was just a bigger believer? No, he knew more. He knew more, and he knew that the premises that human beings are assuming going into those questions are false. And therefore, the question is a legitimate question. That's actually what the Ram says. The Ram says when he addresses the question, the Ram says, and if you're asking the questions because you didn't really understand what I said about God being the knower, the knowledge, and the one. That's what he says. And he says, therefore, asking the question just indicates your lack of understanding of God's oneness. And therefore, and now what does it mean to understand God's oneness? How he's not many. So the more you really understand how he's not many things, the less you're motivated to ask that question. So if God is some kind of defined essence, he has a ma, he has a mahus, he has what he is, even if I never know what he is, the more I can be clear about what he's not, I get to some kind of weird space of like, having like the, the like, um, there's a thing in, draw, there's a thing in, in, in drawing and in art, and, which is that something called positive spaces and negative spaces. Mm-hmm. So sometimes something is very hard to draw if you try and draw it, but if you draw the space around it, like a, like, a, like a bent elbow. Many, many people, if you try and like, like we should draw a portrait of somebody with their elbows bent like this, you get the proportions all off. But if you just try and draw the space in the middle and then the space around, you can do a pretty good job of it. 
Okay? And so you get this kind of like negative space sense of what God is. Well, he's not this, he's not this, he's not this. So there's this vague sense of what's left over and that's where God is. And even though I can't articulate it or really grasp it, I have some, some, some notion of it. The rabbi describes it almost coming like a flash, like lightning. Now, that's all true if God is something specific. But if God is not something specific, the saying that he's not gateway any closer. Isn't it, didn't we just say it's idolatrous? And so, there are Kabbalists who take very critical views of this idea and saying, the idea that you're saying God is something is a subtler version of saying God is is a rock or a tree. Mm -hmm. And therefore it's, 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 it's not maybe halachically idolatry, but it's definitely, you know, teetering on the edges. This class is either teaching us about God or just heretical. Right. Okay. So we're living on the edge. Because the Kabbalists would say like this, saying that God is not a rock doesn't get you any closer to knowing what God is. But if you're saying that God doesn't have an essence, is that because you're, you're categorizing it into that God doesn't have an essence? Oh, so, so this, is, this, is, this, is, this is where we have to differentiate between language and concepts. There are many things that fit into language, but there's no associating concept. Okay? Um, and sometimes that's obvious, sometimes it's less obvious. So I'll give you the obvious one. It's a little poem that I grew up with. Okay? Poem goes like this. One bright day in the middle of the night, two dead boys got up to fight. Back to back, they faced each other, drew swords, and shot each other. A deaf policeman heard the noise and tried to rouse the two dead boys. Right? That has zero meaning. How do you guys know this? Why do you know My that? My mom taught that to me, but it's a slightly different what? version. I don't want to know that. If you don't believe this, this story is true, ask the blind. Ask the blind. saw it too. That's a later edition. How do you all know this? I don't know. It's not good. Charles of the Party wasn't that good. You need eccentric parents, that's all. Except, uh, my parents? Wait, what does that mean? Okay. Did they teach this at the University of Minnesota? Oh, no. no. You don't know this. Okay. No, I, thanks, Nora. I would see this when I was a kid. Okay. You would see this when you were a kid? Yeah. Okay. So, but it's, the, 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 it's literally incoherent. It means nothing. It means nothing. Okay. And now... Because, because brightness, because, uh, because, because day and night are so tangible, it's so obvious that it means nothing. That's why there's, a, there's an element of humor to it. One thing that the Rambam writes, which is ironic, the Rambam writes is that there are many things that are equally incoherent, but people's minds are not sufficiently abstract enough to appreciate the incoherence. So they think, they imagine they're saying something intelligible, okay, but it's actually not. So when you say God has no defined essence, there is not God, there is no thing that makes God be what he is. Right? Have you said anything that the rational mind actually like goes, okay, I understand what that means? No. No. But it's sufficiently abstract that your rational mind, you know, can like snooze and you're fine. Now it's weird because there is some other part of you that says that sounds right, and we'll learn later in Tanya that we have other parts of ourselves that are not the rational mind. But the rational mind, like, like, like literally, just like your, your feet can't study and your eyes can't hear, your rational mind cannot, there's nothing to make sense of in that sentence. It doesn't mean anything. Which is weird, because I'm trying to explain to you how it doesn't mean anything. But you're not canceling out anything by saying that. Yeah. But you're, right, right, but you're, so if you say God isn't a rock, the Kabbalists say, yeah, God is not a rock. 
Okay. Did that move you any closer to, to knowing what God is? And the answer is no. What do you mean by and, and the thing is, the thing is, the thing is, the thing is, that's, I'll give you an analogy for this, yeah? Okay. I'm thinking of a number, okay? Okay? You can ask me questions about the number. We can. Is it prime? Okay. It is not a prime number. Is it odd? It is not an odd number. Does it have one digit? It doesn't, um, yeah, it has one digit. Oh, that's not so it's two, four, six, eight. No. Wait, it does have one digit. It does have one digit. Oh, you know about it so far? It's, an it's, it's not. Four, six, it's not prime. It's not odd. And it's not odd. So it's two, four, six, or eight. Is it, it eight? Two. Is it zero? It is not zero. Is it greater? Is it eight? It is not eight. Is it six? No, it's is not it six. Four? Two. No. Is it two? No. Is it infinity? Is it negative? <clears throat> no. What? Is it a whole number? Oh, no. What do you consider a number to be? Is it well, a real number? No. Is it I? Yes. Uh, yeah. I, hate it. Okay. I was thinking now, about that. Here, here's, here's, oh, oh, that's what I'm going to do. But it's not a number, right? <laughs> no, words, as long as you were working off the notion that a number is something that fits on that number line, there is no amount of asking questions got you anywhere closer, right? No. <laughs> right? There's, in other words, <laughs> this is cheating, right? Because I used a, I, 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 because your mind is, is working off of the premise. There's a thing called the number line. You're trying to figure out where on the number line the number is, right? But is this number on the number I'm, line? Because it's not a number. It's a variable. No, it is a number. It is a number. It is a number. Guys, I is fake. This is the point I want to... This is the point. In other words, like this. It's not a number. That's what I'm saying. It's an imaginary... It's a variable that took the... Pl- that has that the form a, no. of a number. It's no. The, no, I is no. a number. Yeah. What number? Yeah. Pi is a number. Pi is a number. No, no wait. Pi, pi, has, pi is also a number. Okay, guys, guys. If we if we can bring if we can bring if we if we can bring, we can bring this back. That wasn't us. No, I agree with you that it's a number, but it's not a number like pi. If we if we can bring this back for a second, the reason why this elicits such controversy, okay, is because. When you, there, if, if your mind is looking for a number, it has a sense of what a number is, right? And then it uses all sorts of things to figure out, is it like it is not like that? And those, those things move you closer to which number I was thinking about, right? But if your sense of what a number is, or if, the, sorry, if, what, I'm, if what I mean by number lies completely outside your sense of what a number is, then no amount of you asking questions about numbers gets you anywhere closer. So it's not really informative. Okay, now, you can do this with the human mind as long as you're still working within the realm of an essence, of a what. The one thing that the human mind cannot escape is that everything is something. It is this and not that. But the minute you want to get outside of that, what happens to the human mind? It shuts off, it doesn't work. So even though I can articulate this with words, the best your human mind can do is come to the realization that it's not equipped to, kn- to know what God is and turns off. But that's it. And the Kabbalists say, when they so when the Kabbalists say God is ain't so, they mean if you want to, quote, know God, what is not going to help you? At all. That's right. Just, just stop. Like, seeing doesn't help you here. And, you know, having, you know, very flexible seeing. Seeing? Yes, like people who are deaf. What about lip, lip 
No, no, here, here. Here, H-E-A-R. Okay. Like here, like yeah. someone who has been deaf from birth, right? And never heard anything, right? The fact that they can lip read does not enable them in any way to appreciate what's happening in those silent few seconds in movie, those few seconds in movies where nothing's happening when the score is playing. There's interviews with people who, uh, who are deaf and then they, got, they, they, had, they were able to hear later. And so one of the things that's often reported is that when they watch movies, they don't understand why deaf people who've been deaf from birth don't understand why movies are so long. Because if you take a movie and you cut down, it's like second by second, and you cut out all the scenes where there's no action and there's no dialogue, you still have a decent amount of time. What's happening during that time is there's background music playing, which is setting mood. But if you can't hear and you have no notion of hearing, it just seems like, why is things moving so slowly? And the fact that you can see what's going on doesn't help you. The, the Baal Shem Dov actually uses this analogy he says, why are, why, are, why are Chassidim so joyous? So he says, imagine people who are entirely deaf went into a wedding when the music was playing. They never heard music. They saw a bunch of people going like this. <laughs> what are crazy people doing? Like, you're all crazy, right? But if you can hear the music, it, 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 it's the most natural thing in the world. So if you sense the Ein Sof, Joy is the most natural thing in the world. And if you don't sense the Ain Sof, no amount of explaining it is going to help you. Well, the idea is that Chassidim are in touch with their Jewishness. That was the point. Right. Well, it's more than that. It's in a silent disco and the, everyone else is deaf. So they don't, even pre, they don't even have a frame of reference for knowing what's going on. We heard like that. They don't know what music our right, teacher told so. us that there's this, in the middle of a town, there's like a few people they set up to play music. If the first few people surround them, they see the people <coughs> like playing music and so they like stand and dance around and then more people come and then they only see the people dancing, they don't necessarily see the music. And as people fill, they don't really even know about the music in the middle, they just hear it and then like a deaf man comes in and he doesn't even What? A bunch of crazy people, what yeah. are you doing? <laughs> okay. So, so, so the Kabbalists are saying things like this. The idea that you're going to use your mind to relate to God is ridiculous. It, it, it's just stupid. It's not... God is... A, to, your mind can only relate to things that have something that makes it what it is, that defines it. And even if you don't know what defines it, you can at least work around its borders. What, what isn't it? That gives you some shadow sense of what it is. But if God is ain't Sof then there's nothing for the mind to do. There's nothing for the reason to do. There's nothing for, for, for speculation or reflection and contemplation to do. You either have an Ein Sof sensor, something that picks up on the Ein Sof, or it doesn't pick up on the Ein Sof, whatever that is. But, but there's nothing for you to... Right? By the way, there are people, that's their approach to religion, right? Is that like, God is, like, God is not the kind of thing that you should even attempt to understand because understanding doesn't get you anywhere. Just in principle. So that's the Kabbalistic position. And so the Kabbalist hears these philosophers debating the essence of God and thinks it's ridiculous as a bunch of people debating what color the number five is. Five, number five doesn't have color. It's an abstract notion. Yeah. Oh, well. That's what we have to talk about. Okay. 
So there is this huge divide between the Kabbalist and the, well, I would call it the philosopher, if you will. Is that the philosopher says the ground upon which we stand in order to relate to God is our minds. And therefore, since our minds work through knowable essences, therefore God has to fit into that framework somehow. And if, and what is, so maybe God is, what we, God is the unknowable essence, that you can know how you can't know this essence, but that's still kind of a knowable essence, a knowable distinct kind of a thing. And the Kabbalist stands on the side and says, that's a bunch of nonsense. Wait, but spirit are Kabbalistic. Well, but when I didn't finish the whole explanation of Kabbalah. It was one class. <laughs> and therefore, just like moving up and down the number line doesn't get you to I, and playing, you know, you know, you know, no amount of running enables you to understand calculus, and no amount of hearing enables you to see, or no amount of seeing enables you to hear. No amount of understanding moves you any closer to God. In which case, is it fair to say that because that, that might that you are somehow closer or have a deeper understanding of God, and that's why you never ask the questions of like, where is God going to sleep when He comes down when Mashiach comes? Like, the fact that we're more informed about God, would the Kabbalists agree with that? My, my, my child asked, said, like, where's God going to stay? Because Bubby and Zader are coming. There's not going to be enough bed space for everybody. Was he any further away in his awareness of God than you are? The Kabbalists would say no. But what would someone like the Rambam say? Yes. Very far away. Right? Okay, you know, we have a few minutes left. I mentioned this before. The Baal Shem Tov spoke about how the, the simple people have a special connection to God. Mm-hmm. What, what, and the problem is, the word notion doesn't make a lot of sense, but for lack of words, what notion of God would you have to subscribe to to say the simple people have a special closeness to God? The Kabbalistic. The Kabbalistic, the God is Ain Sof. Because if you say God is a discernible essence, or defined essence, then you can rank people in how much clarity they have on that essence. Even if that clarity is entirely in the framed in the negative. So the Baal, and in fact, strangely enough, you could then take another argument and say, the people who think by knowing more, think they're closer to God in a certain weird way are actually further from God than the people who don't think they know about God and are perfectly okay with the fact they don't know anything about God. They're not further from God, they're further from. Right, that's why he said in a certain kind of a way. In other words, they're not really further, but the thing that they think makes them close isn't really making them close. They're false. They're not right, further. and so there's a falseness in that, right? Yeah. And so that really flips the whole like religious hierarchy on its head, right? The person, who, the person who believes utterly silly things about God might in fact have less falseness in their sense of God than the person who's well, who studied a lot of theology and really understands what does and doesn't make sense to say about God. Seemingly the wrong like missed, not like missed, but like how could it be that he did not understand this thing like Because it's not really understanding. I don't. I haven't. Exp- I haven't. I didn't understand. I just, no, it's, not, it's kind of understanding what you don't understand. But understanding what you don't understand is what the Rambam is saying. This is not understanding at all. There's no understanding. If you're understanding what you don't understand, notice the word "what." You're understanding Something. what you don't understand. But if there's no what, there's nothing to not understand either. Like this is not the kind of thing you relate to by seemingly you would relate to by trying to explain, which is weird. Why we're having class on it, but okay. It makes me so confused when I think about it more. <laughs> right, because it, it's not it something should. to... It should. But like it's... But then, so some Kabbalists <laughs> had a very simple approach, well, so just let go of trying to make sense of it. 
I didn't do that yet. I've just got to the point of where, so you understand that they said something radically different. So why the fact that they agreed is even is, is, is a, the, that's why you're reading this book of Tanya and Tanya's chassidus and chassidus like uses a lot is like works within the basic perspective of Kabbalah, you know, of mysticism. And then you see the Rambam quote and you're like. Alter, how are you quoting the Rambam here? Like, like you're speaking about God as he's kind of like this defined something that can convey his essence. That doesn't make any sense. Just, shh, shh, the Kabbalists, they agreed with the Rambam. If you want to know more, you can look it up in the Ramak, in the, in the Pardes. Ramak is an acronym for his name, Ramosha Kodavero. But I'm not going to make you look it up. I will teach it to you next week. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.